This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Norman Neymark, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this seminar uh, with our distinguished guest, Marshall Goldman. On behalf of the Center um, uh, for Russian, East European, East European and Eurasian, Eurasian, and Eurasian, I always forget the Eurasian, because that's new, uh, studies, uh, and the Forum for Contemporary Europe. Uh, we have a full house today, and that's a, a, a testament uh, to the work and, and uh, visibility of Marshall Goldman, uh, who is one of the uh, leading figures uh, in this country in the study uh, of Russia and what was the Soviet Union, uh, economy and politics. And I have to say, uh, I'm especially uh, grateful to be able to introduce Marshall because I've known him for more than 35 years. It's hard to believe. Um, and uh, he has been a real stalwart in the field of the interdisciplinary study of uh, the Soviet Union and Russia uh, throughout the country, not just at Harvard, uh, where he's been uh, for most of those years. Uh, Marshall is a professor emeritus of economics uh, at Wellesley, and today uh, holds the uh, title of a senior fellow at the, uh, what is today the Davis Center. It used to be the Russian Research Center. One of the reasons it's the Davis Center is because of Marshall uh, and his work uh, at, at Harvard. He's published extremely widely. I'm not going to try to go through all of his uh, many, many books and articles. He publishes, as you may know, uh, in the, the New York Times and the New Yorker, um, um, Wall Street, or many other, many other uh, um, contemporary uh, publications. And his work is always paid attention to uh, by us and by the folks in Washington. And he's advised. Um, both the senior and junior President Bushes, right? We, you'll take no credit, I hope, <laughs> for their uh, policies. He's also talked to, I don't know if he's advised, he may have, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and Vladimir Putin uh, about, uh, about the, situation, uh, the situation in Russia today. He comes today primarily uh, to talk to us about his new book, which I'm going to hold up, Petrostate, uh, a wonderful title uh, for the book. And by the way, a wonderful book. I, I've read it all, and I can recommend it to you. It's a really terrific book pub published by Oxford University Press. And uh, he's going to tell us about his work um, uh, on this book uh, today. And again, with all the warmth and gratitude for years of friendship and support, I'm glad to I'm glad to introduce to you Marshall Goldman. Uh, thanks, Norman. I've got to say, Norman is a special person. Uh, he worked with my wife for many years, and uh, you're lucky you have him. I wish we had him back in, back in Boston. Um, this um, subject uh, is the most exciting thing I think I've ever worked on. Uh, and um, partly because it, it's as if Putin is working as my agent 
Uh, he does things that are just unbelievable. And if I were to write this as fiction, you wouldn't believe it. You'd say it's just, you know, just too crazy. And if I call it nonfiction, well, then maybe it has some, some credibility. And I'm going to try to spell out plots on plots on plots. Um, it's, uh, Russia has gone through some spectacular changes under, under Putin. Uh, there's there's some handouts I didn't make enough unfortunately she's making she's making some more uh, there you should end up with the four different uh, charts uh, um, the initial version has two pages one on each page but I don't know if you, the reason I want the handouts is because you're not going to be able to absorb this but you can see what happened here uh, in the early 90s under the early Yeltsin years, um, enormous drop in the GDP, averaging, the dark uh, columns are the GDP, averaging 14, 15% a year. If you com combine it together in the early 90s, it's a drop of about 40% in the GDP, which is what approximately we suffered in the Great Depression, worse than what we suffered in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, then Putin becomes prime minister. Now there's a slight uptick here in the GDP in, in uh, 1997, and then of course the financial collapse of 1998, which affected us. What happened in Russia really kind of set off the long-term capital management fiasco, which some of you may remember, where uh, this company <laughs> really went, would have gone bankrupt and would have brought down the whole. American financial system and our stock market fell 20%. I remember because I had stock uh, invested, so it's a personal thing uh, with me. But then in any case, uh, look what happens now, turn around 1999, um, suddenly the recovery begins. Well, yes, well, and, and not for nothing, uh, Putin is appointed a prime minister by Yeltsin in August 1999. So. Uh, and then, of course, he's made acting president in January 2000. And so for the Russians, they look at this, they look at um, uh, Putin's coming in, and they combine the two, and they say that uh, Putin is the one. Well, the question I want to ask is, is Putin, does Putin deserve credit for this? In other words, would Putin, would Russia be different if Putin had not been appointed prime minister and then uh, president. Now, uh, Norman mentioned that I'm retired, but all those years of teaching, I learned one thing, and that is at the beginning of the lecture, people pay attention. <laughs> in the middle of the lecture, they begin to think of why there's an opportunity cost, why am I not someplace else, <laughs> sleeping if nothing else. And at the end of the lecture, thank God it's over. I, I don't really, so I'll tell you the answer now, and then you can do whatever you want uh, uh, in the interim. And the answer is yes, Russia would be different if Putin had not been selected by Yeltsin, but it would still be uh, a very, still show very rapid economic growth. So it would be very different, but this economic growth that I'm about to show you uh, is, would have been there in any case. And so then, try to entreat you to stay awake. Uh, one of the things they're going to ask, well, why is, it, why is that the case? And it's kind of obvious. <coughs> 
as Norman mentioned, at petrostate, that's what I'm going to talk about. Some people say you don't want to call it petrostate because people think you're talking about prostate. Well, it's not, it's not quite that, but, but uh, it certainly does, does make a difference here. So what am I going to talk about? Well, uh, first of all, I'm going to talk about the reasons for the, the climb and then the reasons for the growth and uh, what's Putin's role in this, if any. And then I'm going to talk about the prospects for the new president, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, it's, it's terrific because none of my um, friends who don't specialize in Russia can pronounce his name. It's, it's, just, it's just something that gives us something that's different. Uh, Say it again. Uh, I won't. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, and then so and then finally, uh, two things. What are the implications for the European Union and the United States in, in all this? Um, and then more recently, the last thing is the last week or so. There have been reports that uh, Russian oil production is in, indeed uh, beginning to decline. And what are the implications uh, and meaning of that? Well, anyway, that's, that's where I'm going to head. So if uh, somebody says, what did he talk about? You know the answer, and you know approximately where I'm going, and then we'll see what else happens in the room. OK, the reason <coughs> for the growth, to get right to it. Um, some argue that Russia is as what Andrei Schleifer has called a normal country now, both in a book and, and in an article in Foreign Affairs, and it's not dependent on any specific product. And then Andres Aslan argues that it's a market economy and everything is normal and uh, the country is prospering and it'll continue to prosper no matter what happens. Well, I take issue with that, and uh, one of the ways I take issue with it, if Russia is a normal country if you think Saudi Arabia is a normal country, and if you think Saudi Arabia is a normal country, then you have no problem. Here. In the case of, of Russia, and it's almost it's a little a little worse than Saudi Arabia, but not much. Oil and gas in 2007 accounted for two thirds of Russia's export revenue. So you can see it's a monoculture. It's very heavy. That's why it's 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 petrostate. And uh, you know some people think, well, again, it's uh, maybe it's Saudi Arabia he's talking about, but it's really uh, <coughs> more than anything else uh, a Russia a country that's very heavily dependent on oil. In fact, today. Russia produces more oil than Saudi Arabia does, or at least it did last year. Uh, to the extent that it's leveled off a bit, maybe it hasn't. But Saudi Arabia cut back intentionally uh, to kind of stabilize the price or increase the price, depending on how you look at it. But look at look at this uh, uh, chart again, and it, and and it's something uh, you don't see or you rarely see. I don't say you never see it, but you rarely see in economics or in politics or uh, in political science, whatever, whatever you are. The lighter uh, column here is oil production. And when oil production drops, and it was dropping in the, in the early 90s, GDP drops without fail. That's, it's a perfect correlation. Without fail. When it goes up a little bit, GDP. And it's GDP is driving it. It's not GDP that's driving the, the oil production. So, uh, and then even in, and then in 98 when it drops, oil production drops. It doesn't drop the same percentage, uh, but then it begins to increase. Oil production increases a little bit and the GDP goes up. Now, if you also factored in here the change in price, not just the quantity of oil being produced, but the change in production, then it, it comes, the two lines would be almost, almost identical uh, all the way through. So this is, you know, it's very clear that oil um, <coughs> makes... The difference here, and unless you can tell me that Putin has an impact on oil production, which he may, <coughs> um, but I don't think that's that's relevant here. 
then you can't you can't really say this is all due to Putin. What you can you can say is that indeed Putin comes in and uh, happens to be lucky that he's there at the right time when things change, and then he's the beneficiary, or and the country's the beneficiary of this increase uh, in, in oil production. So indeed. That's the, the point that I want to make, and, it, and arguing basically it has nothing to do with Putin. So then, what accounts for the drop in oil production? That's, that's the thing that you have to look at. And I, there are a variety of factors. In large part, the major factor I think you could argue was really because oil prices fell at the beginning of, of indeed in the, in the late 80s. And that's a story in and of itself. And it, has something to do actually here with the Hoover uh, Institution. Um, uh, in terms of, no, Hoover Institution didn't cause it, I don't know. Oh, you never know. You never know. But, it, but at least some, some people who here have analyzed what took place argue that. Um, somebody by the name of Peter Schweitzer, I don't know him, but he was, has been a fellow here uh, at the Hoover Institution, wrote a book in which he argues that Bill Casey, who was the head of the CIA under Ronald Reagan, uh, and Bill Casey was really the one who coordinated and, and promoted a, a drop in oil prices. Casey was a very colorful figure. He was an international banker, and he thought big. And so he, this was the middle of the Cold War, Reagan, the Cold War. Uh, and Casey said, what can we do to destabilize Russia? What can we do to cut out the props from underneath them? And he realized at the time, because he was again in international banking, that what was holding up the whole, the whole Soviet Union was that the only product they could use to pay for the grain they were importing was oil. And if for some, some way he could bring about a reduction in the price of oil, that would cut out the props from underneath uh, the Soviet Union. And by the way, would be a beneficial help the United States because that would mean we could import Oil at a, at a cheaper price. So how? So here you're sitting, and you're you know, and you're in the CIA court. What can I do to get uh, oil prices drop? He goes off to Saudi Arabia, and he tells the Saudis, "Look, you're not happy about what's going on in Afghanistan. Remember the Russians now? The Soviets have invaded Afghanistan, and this, of course, created a sense of solidarity in the Arab world. And he says, you know, you want to hurt the, you want to hurt the Soviets. The, at that point, the, the Saudis had very little to do." with uh, the Soviet Union and indeed were considered an ideological enemy of the Soviet Union. If you want to hurt them, what you do is increase oil production. That'll increase price, that'll diminish prices, it'll flood the market, the Soviets will, will collapse. <clears throat> and anyway, this is what Schweitzer looks at and he kind of traces uh, Bill Casey's travels and, he, and indeed Casey does meet with uh, the Saudis both here in the United States and then he goes to Saudi Arabia. I look at this in the book and it, it's, it's a little strange because the timing is off. Prices do fall, but oil production was at the, its high point in the, in the early 80s and so why didn't the thing collapse earlier? What, what, something is wrong a little bit uh, with, with the timing, but at the same time a new book has come out by Jaeger Gaidar. Jaeger Gaidar is an economist and uh, also was the acting prime minister in the first uh, uh, few years, first few months of uh, uh, Yeltsin's uh, presidency. And Gaidar has gone into the uh, uh, archives 
he's gone into the Plepiro minutes, and if you really want you know, to read something that's fascinating, read this. Because Gaidar talks about the, the panic that affected the Politburo when, in the, in, in the latter uh, Gorbachev years. Uh, and in the latter Gorbachev years, what he finds is that indeed oil prices have dropped and they're running out of money in the, in the Treasury. And they're running out of money for the purchase of grain. They're also running out of money because they're propping up Eastern Europe. And so they're looking at Poland and other countries, and the Poles are desperate. The Russian, the Soviets at that point are supporting, underpinning uh, support for the East European countries. And so altogether, <clears throat> they need money for Eastern Europe. And at one point, Gaidar says that uh, Gorbachev sends a letter or a message to a cable to uh, Helmut Kohl and says, we're desperate, we really need support. And remember, we were talking about a grand bargain in that, in that era, what can we do to help Gorbachev? We like Gorbachev, we wanted to help Gorbachev. And so <clears throat> Gorbachev says, you know, the, the treasury's empty here, you've got to really come to our support. So something was going on there. Whether it was, you know, A causing B causing C is, is another question, <clears throat> but clearly, uh, the Casey was not doing anything to build up the Soviet Union uh, at this point, and this all begins uh, to happen. So, dropping of oil prices, it maybe not uh, would have happened naturally, but certainly uh, did have an impact. However, it happened, oil prices dropped, and this under undercut much of what the Soviet Union was doing. So, prices are one thing. The second factor is that beginning in this period. 1991 begins the privatization process, uh, and this is something that I wrote about in my uh, most work, recent book before this one, <clears throat> and basically they were stripping assets. Some of the people that came in who took over some of the oil companies had never seen an oil field before. Some of these people were traders, were black marketeers, uh, and they came in, and, and even Kartakovsky from Yukos claims, uh, goes to somebody in, out in in uh, Tumen and says, I've never seen an oil field before. Can you, can you arrange for me to go visit an oil field? At this point, he's already taking over control of Yukos. And so they didn't know what to do. They weren't using the resources effectively, besides which oil prices were down at this point, and they, that encouraged them to strip assets. Stripping assets meaning uh, take, not reinvesting, taking the resources out of the country, putting it in Zurich or putting it in London or even, even uh, uh, in New York. So you had inexperience and you had a drop in prices that were causing uh, uh, this particular drop. Okay, so then the next question is why does production then begin to go up here uh, in this period in the, in the late uh, 90s and throughout uh, the, uh, this part of the uh, 21st century? Well, um, here, here comes uh, again uh, some, some complicated uh, reasoning. The crash of August 1998, the crash that I referred to with long-term capital management was August, uh, I'm sorry, it was the crash, yeah, August 1998, and then the recovery begins actually in March 1999. If you look at on a month-by-month -month industrial production, which I don't have in front of you, but if you do, you see that, that after dropping consistently from August through to <coughs> February, in March it begins to go up. And who is the prime minister then? Well, it's Primakov. So if anyone deserves credit for the turnaround in production recovery, it's Primakov. Putin doesn't come in until August 1999. So it's wrong to say Putin is, is the savior uh, in, in this particular case. 
But I don't give credit to Primakov either, because what begins to happen is that oil prices begin to rise. And as oil prices begin to rise, then the people, the oligarchs and others who are running these oil companies say, hey, look, there's more money to be made within Russia by investing than sending it off to Zurich or, or wherever else uh, it, it may be. So, look, if I were the president then and oil prices were $10 a barrel or $12 a barrel when I come into power and they go up to 118 as it was last week, I would look like a genius too. I mean, you know, <laughs> it doesn't take that much talent uh, when, when oil prices are growing, are growing tenfold. Uh, at that kind of thing. And so they, they began to reinvest and they began to bring in new technology that they hadn't uh, done before. So anyway, that's, that's the answer that it's the oil price change that makes it the major difference. But does Putin make a difference? And my answer is yes, Putin does make a difference. But not because of the oil prices, because of the other things I'm about uh, uh, to discuss. Um, uh, you know, Putin's background is he's uh, trained as a lawyer at Leningrad University under Subchak. He, he then, his goal is to join the KGB. He goes, knocks on the door in, uh, what, 1968, the uh, Prague, you know, the crackdown on Prague, which, which is hardly a sign that the man has democratic instincts. He, he admires what, what's going on, the KGB is doing there. And, and the crackdown on, on uh, the Czech uh, reform. Anyway, he is trained as a KGB agent, then he goes, he, he gets into the KGB, he goes off to, to Germany, and then he comes back uh, at, with the collapse of the, uh, uh, the Cold War with the Berlin Wall falling down. He goes back and then he's rehired, <laughs> he's brought in by Subchop. Subchop brings him back to Leningrad and then St. Petersburg and puts him in charge of foreign economic relations as kind of a deputy mayor, a deputy governor. And then unfortunately Subchak is defeated in the election and Putin is jobless again after the 89 collapse of the wall. He was jobless, he goes back to St. Petersburg, but now he's jobless again. And he decides he's going to write a dissertation of kind of like a master's degree, which he does and he writes it in June 1997. This is way before there's any possibility of his going to Moscow, any chance of his becoming prime minister, much less president. He writes this as really a theoretical exercise. What, if, if I were giving advice, what would I do to restore the glory that was the Soviet Union? What, what can we do within the country? It's, it's just, he's writing for you know, a theoretical exercise or that he would give it to a, a candidate. And he comes up with this notion of national champions. And by national champions, what he means is what, what does Russia have at this point that, that is different? What's our comparative advantage, as an economist might say? Now what he says is that what we have are raw materials. We've got not only uh, uh, minerals in the form of, of metals, but we also have oil and natural gas. Let's take these and kind of restore them to the government's control because they've been privatized. Let's gather them back and create these national champions so that we can go out and compete with ExxonMobil. You know, the United States doesn't think of ExxonMobil as a national champion, but he wants to create things like this that before were, were the ministries and now are private firms, and, he, and of course the prime target is Gazprom. Now Clifford, again, this is not my finding, but, uh, it, it, but it's very interesting. Clifford Gotti, who's at Brookings, uh, had a Russian research assistant, and they heard about this uh, thesis. We, part of it was published. 
and they got a copy of it, and they went back and looked at it, and I, I think it was probably the Russian uh, assistant who went back and discovered that this thing that Putin has written about national championships actually was plagiarized from two professors at Pittsburgh University, uh, 10 to 15 pages, word for word. Well, you know, it's different standards, different countries, it's okay. I mean, uh, 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 but, so he takes this notion, and indeed, what does he do? Well, you go to the next uh, uh, table, it's on the back side of, 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 of what you have, and look what happens. Putin is finally elected as his own man in uh, March 2000 as the president, and immediately, Almost immediately, he begins to create these national champions. Uh, he goes after Victor Chernomyrdin. Chernomyrdin had been the minister of the gas industry, because Gazprom, after all, is nothing but what used to be the, the ministry of the gas industry. He's made prime minister under, under Yeltsin. And then, he's, as the economy goes through some turmoil, he's removed and, and as a kind of a second best, he's made chairman of Gazprom again, in a sense, going back home. But he's stripping assets, and along with Rem Vyakarev, who is had been uh, Chernomyrdin's deputy minister of the gas industry, and then when Chernomyrdin went off, became the the chairman uh, the, or the effect, effective CEO of Gazprom. The two of them are stripping assets right and left, and here's where it's fiction, uh, or you think it's fiction, or no, you can't think it's fiction because it's just so bizarre. Um, and what they do is they're, they're stripping assets, I say, right and left. And one of the beneficiaries of this is a company that's actually called Itero, which is located in Jacksonville, Florida. Why Jacksonville, Florida? Why not? It's warmer than Moscow and it's outside the country. Uh, and as far as we know, the uh, trustees of Itero, it's very opaque, uh, are primarily the wives, children, and the mistresses of the senior executives of Gazprom. It's a nice family relationship. This, I can't imagine my wife meeting my mistress. I don't know how that would be. But, it, but anyway, it, it seems to work out uh, uh, very nicely. And they're sh shipping these assets. And so one of the first to go is Chernobyl Mirden. And he's removed as chairman. And of course, who comes in ultimately is Medvedev. Dmitry Medvedev comes in to take over as chairman. Medvedev had worked as an assistant to Putin in St. Petersburg in Subchak's office. So, so uh, he's brought in to get rid of uh, Chernomyrdin, and then a year later, uh, in May 2001, uh, he finally gets rid of Yakarev, <coughs> um, who had also been very much involved uh, in, in this kind of thing. Now, there had been efforts to get rid of Yakarev before, unsuccessful. One of the people trying to do that was a man by the name of Boris Fyodorov, who had been the Minister of Public Finance before in the early years of Yeltsin, and then was now uh, move, moved over to a, a private investment bank. And that investment bank had stock in Gazprom, and he tried to, because the, they were stripping the assets, he wanted the benefits to go in terms of dividends and to the stockholders. Uh, and so in an effort to purge Vyakarev, he launched a campaign, a stockholders campaign, to get rid of Vyakarev. Vyakarev took very badly to that. He didn't like that notion that he was going to be removed. And so suddenly Fyodorov discovered that he was the subject of attack in almost every newspaper in Moscow. 
uh, vicious attacks on him. He got a visit from uh, some mafia members who said, you know, you're probably not doing the right thing. Uh, the next day he discovered his dog was poisoned, just like it was out of The Godfather. Uh, you know, it's not a cow but, or a horse, but, but the, his dog uh, was poisoned. And then finally, so he has no luck. Putin comes along and pushes out Vyakarev, the attacks immediately stop. Uh, and Fyodorov was curious about all this. How come the sudden starting, suddenly the sudden stopping, and he goes off and he contacts several of the newspapers and he gets a price list of how much it will cost if you want to attack somebody uh, in, the, in the Russian press. And, and, and I have that price list, which is uh, really uh, just a fascinating thing to see. So this was a concentrated attack on, on anyone who tried to get rid of, of Yakarov. Well, anyway, Putin does it. And immediately now you've got this national champion. He brings in a man by Nima Miller uh, as the CEO, and of course uh, uh, Medvedev uh, is there. Um, and uh, these guys are, are, are gone. Um, now, then he goes after the oil companies in the same way. Again, this notion, national champion, take what we've got, our comparative advantage is, is gas. We're the world's largest producer of natural gas. We're the world's second largest producer or the largest producer of petroleum. And we've got to reclaim those assets. Now, I've divided these up into former nomenclatura. These are people who had been officials in the Soviet era who had been vetted, uh, loyal people that could be trusted. Then I've got what I call the upstart oligarchs, people who, for the most part, were not in the system, were traitors, were ne'er-do-wells or black marketeers, were not, you know, not one of the, not one of our crowd, uh, so to speak, or a part of a different crowd, uh, as it were. And one of them, of course, was Gusinski, not in oil and gas, but Gusinski was a pain in the neck because he created this independent media. Um, uh, network, television network, MTV, uh, and, he, and, and he was in jail a couple of times to try to get him out, and in particular in August uh, uh, 2000, you remember the cursed submarine sank, and M MTV, MTV, and also ORT, the two major television networks, went out after Putin for failing to be more responsive when that, uh, that submarine sank, and to be more responsive to the, to the uh, uh, families. And also in the case of Verosovsky, he also controlled Sibneft, which was again one of, one of the oil companies. So what is interesting here, and of course then finally all the way down you get uh, in 2003, he pushes out Kartakovsky and Yukos. Um, these three of course were, were not Russians ethnically, uh, they were Jews or had some Jewish association. And they are either put in prison or in exile, whereas the others have a softer landing. They're removed, but they end up in, in a, uh, something that's not so bad. They're not in power. They're taken away from running these national champions, but, but they're still, uh, still pushed out. So the main thing to, that I want to stress is that Putin uses this notion of national champions that he worked out as kind of a, uh, say a master's uh, degree thesis, but then begins to implement in a very effective way. The other thing is that Putin brought with him from St. Petersburg not only Miller uh, and Medvedev, but he also brought with him some technocrats uh, in the form of uh, Gref, Ilryanov, uh, and Kudrin. And these people come along and make economic uh, proposals. So he introduces a flat tax, 13%, which uh, by normal standards I would oppose in this country, but if you're not paying any tax, a flat tax is better than no tax in Russia, and it indeed 
uh, now they're beginning to tax, collect taxes this way. They also created a stabilization fund, much as they've done uh, in Norway, with the idea that all this money is going to, that I'm going to talk about in a second is coming in from the oil revenues and could be destabilizing unless it's kept in, in kind of an isolated uh, way. So Putin did make a difference. And what you begin to have is, again, the economic growth that uh, uh, goes back. And you're getting that, that growth that I showed you here, so that you're, now you're getting growth of seven, almost 7% 7 a year, which if, in 10 years' time um, means that you're going to double your GDP. So you can understand why people associate the prosperity that has come to Russia with Putin, because he's there when it happens. The oil prices are incidental as far as the public is concerned, but he's really a key figure. But anyway, he's the beneficiary of this, this kind of thing. And with this kind of growth, pushed by the oil, Russia also is doing well in terms of its international standards uh, and stance. Um, in 2005, because of the oil exports, Russia had a trade surplus of $120 billion. Now, you know, you compare this now to the United States where we have these terrible deficits, uh, all kinds of problems. Russia is now doing very much better. In 2006, the trade surplus was $130 billion. Ten billion of that was from the United States because we are now buying Russian petroleum as well. Uh, we are beginning to import it. Uh, in, in well, $10 billion worth. <clears throat> and those of you who are, have some familiarity with the East Coast know, well, you, you know the name Getty from the West Coast, but the, the oil, the gasoline stations that they built were primarily on the East Coast. Luke Oil, which is a Russian company, has bought up Getty Oil, and indeed now, as if, if you drive along New York State or New Jersey, you will see Luke Oil stations that are up and operating and are importing this petroleum uh, from uh, from Russia, and it counts uh, in part for that. So Russia is able to pay off its national debt, foreign national debt. Private companies have come along and borrowed, but at least the state debt uh, has been paid down, and they build up reserves. Russia now has reserves that are equivalent to very close to five hundred billion dollars. Now, here in 1998, the treasury was virtually <laughs> empty. Now they've got $500 billion. What a turnaround uh, that, that uh, indeed has taken place on uh, uh, Putin's watch. The ruble has increased value. The ruble has gained about 20% relative to the dollar. If any of you have uh, been in, in Russia recently, you know it's ex very expensive if you're, if you're uh, using dollars to pay. And Gazprom has become a national champion. It's become the third largest corporation in the world by its capitalized value. ExxonMobil, General Electric, and then uh, Gazprom. Microsoft was number three, but is now the stock price has fallen, and uh, Gazprom uh, has taken over. So that's the transformation. That's what's associated with Putin. A fantastic turnaround. And uh, I wouldn't want to say he's won a president like that, because I wouldn't. but. I mean, some of the things he, he did clearly deserve a lot of credit and a lot of praise. So now the next thing I want to look at then, what are the prospects for Medvedev? Uh, again, if, if you're awake this long, you've got the first part of, of the talk. Uh, we'll see what happens with the second part. Um, this is, this is um, uh, again, kind of a fascinating thing to see. <coughs> Go to the, to the next table. 
Um, again, this is not uh, all this original, but but uh, it's uh, it's it's intriguing thing to watch. I did some of this in the uh, the privatization book. Um, what what Medvedev has to worry about is will he be able to do bring in his own buddies, his own supporters, in a way that uh, Putin did. Um, and you have to, I think, understand how Putin uh, got the support, pushed out the old oligarchs, the original oligarchs, and brought in his new friends, uh, as it were. What what people have come to call the Soloviki, they were the kind of the strength, the law and order types, the people who were in the KGB or the FSB, as it's called now, or the military. Um, you know. I guess the, like Pentagon generals uh, it would be another way uh, to look at it. And this is this is intriguing um, because what you see here is these people are wearing two hats. Uh, in, you know, I've, uh, Norman mentioned that I've had that unusual opportunity of meeting with Putin four times now um, as part of the Valdai Hills group. And um, the trouble is, after four four meetings, you, be, you know, you, you're softened. The, the group begins to ask puff questions, and particularly if two of the meetings have taken place over meals, and it's kind of awkward to insult your host uh, when you're eating chicken with him. I mean, it's just. But I figure, what the heck? Uh, it's, it's, it's my only chance, and, and uh, my in-laws say the same thing that he's not very respectful. So. So my, what, what I do is, if I can't get, you know, this is the only chance I'm going to have, and who knows if they're going to invite me next year anyway. So I ask, I've been asking a couple of times about Sechin. Now look at it, Sechin. Uh, this is, at the bottom you can see this little star if he was from St. Petersburg uh, uh, or KGB. So Sechin meets all those criteria. Uh, he was in the KGB and what is his day job is as the deputy chairman of the Kremlin administration. So he's a full-time job in the, in the Kremlin, but then he now is chairman of Rosneft. So my question to Putin, uh, almost the same, is uh, why are you doing this? Because how can you expect Sachin to have two full-time jobs and do a good job in, in both jobs? Because being deputy chairman of the Kremlin administration is full time, being uh, chairman of Rosneft is full time, and uh, you know how can you expect that? Besides which, how can you expect Sechin to be impartial when the Kremlin is discussing what to do with oil companies? He's clearly not going to rule against uh, Rosneft. And and. Finally, you, aren't you, you got rid of the old oligarchs, you, aren't you creating a new set of oligarchs this way uh, by doing these things? Well, um, uh, Putin's response has always been, been interesting. Uh, he says, well, well, by the way, just, well, before I even do that, what is so unusual about this is I say, in almost all these cases, these guys are wearing two hats. There are no women here. They're all wearing two hats. Um, and they're enriching themselves in the process. You know, that's why I say he's creating a new set of oligarchs. Now, in this country, we, I, I, in fact, I can't think of any other country in the world, if you can think of that, then I, let me know so I won't embarrass myself, uh, where 
this can be done simultaneously. Even in France now, they require that you wait till you're out of office. We wait till you're out of office in this country, and then then you enrich yourself. Uh, you don't. We, we usually don't let it happen uh, simultaneously. Uh, but in Russia, you don't dare wait outside because when you're outside of office, you know, you, you may end up in jail. So you better you better grab it. Well, I mean, there's a good reason for doing it. Uh, do it there. I mean, here we wait till you're out, and then you get in jail after you're, you know, or, or who knows. Um, um, so here we've got this this uh, situation. So Putin's answer is interesting. In the case of Sechin, he says, "Okay, we could wait for bankers and and lawyers to take over, and independent people." He said, "But I trust these people. They're you know they're my comrades." Um, for the most part, in other words, he trusts the KGB people, although corruption is worse now than it was when he came into office for the most part. But, but he said, look, we, we, look, the Harvard sent over uh, two people to give us advice about the transition, and what happened to them? They were found guilty by a federal court, so uh, it's going to be any worse. Here he was referred, of course, to Schleifer and Hay. Uh, so, you know, he may have a point uh, this way. These are these are his people, but they are clearly Unu oligarchs, and they're redistributing wealth. And, and in the process, it's also doing what my wife, who's a sinologist, would say, creating princelings. Now, princelings is what the Chinese call the children of the powerful, who end up in lucrative positions as well. And as, the best example, of course, is Patrushev, who heads the FSB, the former KGB. One of his sons is working in Vineshtorg Bank, a state bank. Is a form of patronage, and of course, then the other is an advisor to Rosneft, to Sechin, which again is uh, uh, there's there he is. I mean, it, it just it's it, I, you would think it would be embarrassing, but but that's okay. Now, that, and, and and of course they're redistributing wealth, and so what's happening now is that you're developing these new oligarchs, and some of the old oligarchs are st still have their money. So according to Forbes magazine, now Russia has the second largest number of billionaires, second only to the United States. In the newest, uh, they've eclipsed uh, Germany. Uh, in fact, uh, Moscow has more than New York City. Uh, Moscow has 74, New York City has 71. Uh, maybe if the people here moved to New York, then everything would be okay, and uh, you know, the Stanford alumni, we'd be all set there, but anyway, uh, so it's, 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 again, for a country that 10 years ago was bankrupt, this is a pretty impressive phenomenon. Now, Medvedev inherits all this, so again, what, what, are, what are his prospects? Well, I think it's going to be hard for him to duplicate what, uh, what uh, Putin did. Putin came in, got rid of the original oligarchs who were not really liked by the public, brought in his people, and it was kind of good riddance to bad rubbish. That way, now Medvedev is going to have to deal with, with these people who are ensconced, who now not only have their KGB connections, which they had before, but they also have money. The original oligarchs had money, but they didn't have KGB connections or government insider connections. And it's going to be much harder for Medvedev to try to get rid of these people. Uh, and I think it, in a few years' time, even though he's been very loyal and subservient to, to Putin, when he has to start dealing on his own with some of these others, they're going to give him a, a hard time. Um, and what about Putin and Medvedev? Well, again, uh, there's a t about a 12-year age difference, and Medvedev, again, has always been very supportive of Putin. And it's clear Putin is 
doesn't want to give up all his his connections and, and his influence. Uh, and probably for the first four years there won't be much trouble. But you know, like a father and son, uh, you know, it's that old man, he's kind of out of it now. He doesn't know what's the new things that are happening. Uh, I don't want to take orders from him anymore. He's, he's not paying attention. And I would suspect that uh, there may be some difficult. It'll be like what happens if Hillary gets into office as president. What's she going to do with Bill? You know, uh, he's going to be back there giving advice. Uh, and uh, Putin's going to be giving advice, and I suspect at some point that's going to make it difficult. Okay, what are the implications of this for the European Union and for the United States? Well, this actually, uh, this other table now is is probably the most important thing in the whole the whole book. Um, when I when I went to the library and I got these figures, and I saw this, and I said, Oh my God! Uh, this is really, uh, I had not been working on a book at that, well, I'd been thinking about it, but I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. When I saw this table, I said, this, this really is, is stunning. Uh, look at the, how dependent Europe is on Russia for gas. Now, you can see the same thing for oil, but oil, because they're also very heavily dependent on Russian oil, but the oil is, doesn't give them the political power that the gas does. Oil. There you can get oil in a variety of ways, by tanker, by pipeline, by railroad car, by truck. Whereas the gas, so far, for the most part, almost comes entirely by pipeline. And it's like an umbilical cord. You sever that umbilical cord, you, you freeze. I, 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 I have to do this. This is ego. Forgive me for, for doing this. But I, I got an agent for the book. And she said, you can't force people to read it. Uh, you can, it's not a textbook. You can't do that. You've got to make them want to read it. So um, I, I, this is my visit to Gazprom. I mean, it's like died and gone to heaven. Uh, so this begins the, the beginning of the book. And, and its subtitle is The Author is James Bond. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, forgive me for doing it. I hate it when people read their own books, but it, but, uh, it won't be long. Uh, at first I was puzzled. Where were they taking us? For such a big, sleek, gas Moscow high-rise, if any of you have seen Gazprom, it's a pretty fancy building. Gazprom's elevator in its headquarters building was tiny. Five people could barely squeeze in, uh, and its hall corridors were very narrow. Uh, this was, after all, the world's largest producer of natural gas, not to mention Russia's largest company. Following a short walk, we were ushered into a dark and silent room where nothing seemed to be happening. Strange. They're going to take away my license as an economist for writing this, but that's... Uh, it was only when all the members of our group had made their way up on the elevators that the room suddenly came alive. Then, for a time, I felt as if I'd wandered into a NASA space center. Or was it a James Bond movie set? All that was missing was that out-of-body voice intoning, Welcome, Mr. Goldman. We were expecting you. <laughs> well, you know, if you've seen James Bond. Anyway, in front of me, covering the whole 100-foot wall of the room, was a map with a spider-web-like maze of natural gas pipelines reaching from East Siberia west to the Atlantic Ocean and from the Arctic Ocean south to the Caspian and Black Seas. Manipulating this display were Gazprom dispatches, three men controlling the flow of Gazprom's gas to east and west consumers of this Russian natural gas monopoly. No wonder there was tight security. There was also a sense <coughs> of self-assurance as measured by the value of the corporate stock. By the summer of 2006, Gazprom, the state-dominated joint stock corporation, 
until 1992 was actually the Soviet Ministry of the Gas Industry had become the world's third largest corporation. With a flick of a switch, these dispatchers sitting in this Moscow room could freeze and indeed have frozen entire countries. At the very least, they could send their citizens off in a panic in search of sweaters and scarves. So, you know, you, you, you've got this colossus sitting there. Now, sooner or later, maybe there will be LNG, but even LNG is expensive because you've got to have a freezing plant and a shipping series of ships and a reprocessing plant. There, you just can't have these things sitting idle. You can't have a second standby pipeline. You can't have this LNG unless you make long-term contracts committing you to recoup those billions, three to four billion dollars that it costs uh, uh, to do these things. So um, this is important. Germany gets 40% of its natural gas from uh, Russia. That's why there is this concern. And, and now, Italy gets 32%. Uh, it's at the other end of the pipeline, so it's not quite so dependent on, on Russia. That, in other words, it also gets some from Algeria and maybe some from Morocco and then some from the North Sea. But the Germans clearly are here. France gets a large percentage, and of course you get down to Eastern uh, Europe and you've got 100%. And you can see how dominant Russia is uh, in this uh, kind, kind of environment. In Great Britain now, there's also a pipeline that goes off to Great Britain. They're talking about, the Russians are talking about buying up uh, gas distribution companies in, in uh, England. And the British are very upset by that. The Russians are now also talking about providing us with 1% of our natural gas. We get most of it from within the United States or from Canada. So it, we're not going to be affected that much by it. But they want to buy up not only the pipeline that brings it in, but the pipeline that delivers it to the household, so they'll be able uh, to control this. And I say Luke Oil, in the grand strategy of things, is already making making inroads here. But but petroleum is different. As far as I'm concerned, bring as much petroleum as you can, because if they cut it off, you know we're not dependent on just that one pipeline. But the <coughs> gas pipeline is is really critical. Now, okay, then finally, what about the report of the drop of oil output? Well, this was a statement that was made by the deputy CEO of Luke Oil uh, that uh, production of, of petroleum in the first quarter of 2008 has leveled off or dropped a little bit. I wouldn't worry too much about that. And indeed, uh, some of our discussions in Russia said, why are you producing so much now? Why don't you save some for the future? Because if you're smart, if it's valuable today, it'll be even more valuable in the future. And because of what economists call inelasticity, if you, make, if you drop production because demand for, for gasoline is so inelastic, uh, it's possible that you'll actually increase your total revenue by producing less, less petroleum. So that, you know, and we've seen what's happened as uh, oil prices uh, have uh, gone up. Um, so um, there's that. But then as also remember, the CIA issued a report back in the 1970s, the late 1970s, saying that the Soviet Union which was the world's largest producer of petroleum at that point, would become the world's largest importer by the mid-80s. And they were just dead wrong. <laughs> they were just dead wrong. In fact, I wrote that my first book on energy was really challenging the CIA about that. Uh, and um, so, you know, we've seen this before. It could happen again. But the, but the most important thing, and again, I appreciate what uh, the guy from Luke Oil did because it makes this more relevant, it happens that the Russians have a tax of 80% once oil prices hit $27 a barrel. And what this guy basically was arguing from Luke Oil is 
look, if you're worried about oil production dropping, one of the ways you can help us lower that confiscatory tax because right now you're making it impossible for us to uh, put in investment. And so I wouldn't worry about that right now uh, as, as something, it, sure it may be dropping, can't tell if it's intentional or if indeed is this just a device to try to get them to remove the tax. Well, let me conclude. Um, what you have here is Putin did make a difference, uh, but oil and gas are even more important, I would argue, for this uh, change that's taking place. But one of the byproducts of all this, of course, is the change in attitude, and, and it's the most striking thing. Ten years ago, they were on their, on their backs. Now they're standing <laughs> tall, and you can read, and I quote some of the things in the book, but that some of the officials are saying, including the, the present governor of St. Petersburg, she says, we're tired of being told what to do. You know, now we can begin to speak out again and, and not maybe become a superpower, but certainly we have it back. And this is reflected in Putin as well, and, and it's just lovely. Uh, in February in uh, Munich uh, last year, there was a press conference, and he was asked about his relationship with President Bush. And, and that's the strangest uh, <laughs> twins that I've, I've ever seen. And the four times that we've met with Putin, he always has something complimentary to say about President Bush. And then as Norman said, I had a chance once to meet with George W. And he has complimentary things to say about Putin. And the two of them, if you watch their body language when they're together, there's a bond between them that I just, I, looking into the eyes, and that's another story, I'll tell you about that if you want. Whatever, whatever it is, it is just uh, unusual. So anyway, so this is, this is Putin's answer. What, what's your relationship with uh, uh, George W. Bush? And he says, President Bush is a decent man, and one can do business with him. And I'm, maybe most of you are too young to remember, but I'd heard something, that framework, before, and of course, what was it? It was Margaret Thatcher saying, I can do business with that peasant from Stavropol, Gorbachev. And so what is Putin saying? I can do business with that cowboy from Crawford, uh, George W. Bush. I mean, you know, Russia is back. We can I put, put down that, that president. And then and finally, this is uh, probably the best one. This is from another press conference that took place in June last year. He's asked by a reporter from Der Spiegel. Uh, the reporter asked, Mr. President, former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, and that's a study in itself, Schroeder <laughs> just a prostitute for, for God's sake. Anyway, uh, former Federal Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder called you a pure Democrat. Do you consider yourself as such? And Putin laughs. This is the transcript. He laughs. And he said, am I a pure Democrat? Of course, absolutely. But you know what the problem is? It's not even a problem, but a real tragedy. The problem is that I'm all alone. The only one of my kind in the whole wide world. Just look what's happening in North America. It's simply awful. Torture. Homeless people. All true. Uh, Guantanamo. People detained without trial and investigation. I mean, we're turning the world on its head, but this is all true. And just look at what's happening in Europe. Harsh treatment of demonstrators. Rubber bullets and tear gas. Used first in one capital and then in another. Demonstrators killed on the streets. And then he ends that response by saying, and there's no one to talk to since Mahatma Gandhi died. <laughs> I mean, Russia is back, and, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's what oil will be for. Thank you. Okay, maybe uh, time for some questions, so let's see.
Uh, okay, we'll start with Catherine. Go ahead, Catherine. Okay. Thanks, Marshall. Um, um, you convinced me to buy the book. So the question I wanted to ask was, um, you know, Mike Whitfall and I wrote this piece in Foreign Affairs, and I talked to you about it a bit this morning, um, basically saying Putin wasn't responsible for most of this. Um, and we've been taking the task, so I want, to, I want you to give me some advice on how to answer the next time, um, for saying that it's all about oil and gas, and that, in fact, Russia's economy has become much more diverse, um, and we're all ignoring this. So when you write a book called Petrostate, you can probably anticipate exactly the same kind of criticism. What's your response going to be yeah. um, to that? That's a good question. I mean, one of the things that happens is, you know, if you look, uh, you go down, to, and I should have maybe put this, said this, uh, there is prosperity in Russia that, that really, as far as I'm concerned, it's the most prosperous it's ever been in its history in terms of, of Tsarist, Soviet, Russian, whatever whatever you have. Uh, when we, if you, we stay very often, we go to Moscow in the uh, Marriott Aurora Hotel, and if you, there's a kind of pedestrian mall on the corner of the hotel, and if you walk down the hotel, what you will see is, okay, uh, what you will see is, uh, is, um, Luxury shops, uh, uh, maybe you have them here in Stanford. We don't have anything comparable in Palo Alto. Maybe we don't have anything comparable in Boston, even on Newberry Street. I mean, there's a really, a, in the automobile, uh, traffic jams. Um, what, what, of course, is happening is, and in all, almost every American manufacturer, well, not, not almost, every American manufacturer is trying to set up an assembly plant in St. Petersburg to sell to that market. Disposable income is up. Uh, and, and, and one of the things Putin uh, did say in one of our discussions, he said one of his greatest accomplishments is that when he came into office, over a third of the population was below the poverty line. Now uh, it's down to 14, 15 percent. But, and, and, and I, I cannot answer the question, and I ask you know, my friends too, that just as you've done, what explains how it trickles down? And I can't quite figure that out. But if you took away that oil and gas, you know, when you when you say, look at three, what did I say? Three quarters of their export revenue uh, comes uh, because of oil and gas. Uh, the oil, in particular, the gas gives them the political power, but the oil is there. It'll all, all collapse. What'll happen when they join the World Trade Organization and they won't have those tariff protections for domestic industry? Where where will they go? So, real disposable income goes up at a very significant rate, and somehow the oil and gas revenues get to the general public, but there's, there's just nothing there. There's no there there except maybe military uh, expenditures, except for the oil and gas. So, now, okay, oh, maybe it's not oil and gas. It also is um, uh, ferrous and non-ferrous metals. But, but that's, again, not the manufacturing side that, that exists. It's, except for vodka, and you can't even count caviar anymore, uh, what else can you think of that one would buy from uh, Russia, other than oil and gas. Now, you can say you know, about the United States. You know, what, look at we worry enormously. Uh, what are we in terms of what's happening to our manufacturing sector? And if it weren't for places like Silicon Valley, uh, we would be hard pressed to uh, compete with Asia uh, as well. But at least we have some things. Yeah. Uh, and the Russians are. You know, Putin has has set himself the task of trying to build up the manufacturing sector. Uh, but the very fact that oil and gas are so prominent and so dominant make it almost impossible to do that because that pushes up, even with the stabilization fund, it pushes up the value of the ruble, which means that anything you manufacture at home uh, um, 
is not is going to be undercut because the ruble is so strong you can bring in imports, and you can't export what you're producing because it's too expensive when you have to pay in rubles. So find examples of what uh, is provides a broader based uh, economic uh, uh, vitality and. And, and if you withdraw that oil and gas, that trade surplus, it ju you know, just look at the foreign trade figures and you see there's just, it's, it, without that, there's nothing. I, I, I said that's something to be proud of, that they've generated this uh, trade surplus, but it's almost all oil and gas. Yes, Kara. Marshall, in what you called your most important table, the reliance on Russian gas, I have two questions for you. These countries listed here, what is their reliance on gas as distinguished from other energy resources or sources? Uh, and so which of these countries is actually the most reliant? Number one and number two connected to that. Uh, so they are dependent on uh, Russia and some may be very dependent. Well, say a little bit more about what that means for the political future. Yeah, do you hear the question back there? It's a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> First of all, uh, 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 the case of France, for example, France is uh, gets almost 80% of its electricity from nuclear. Yeah. Now, one of the things that uh, Gerhard Schroeder did, and the reason I say he's really a, a case study, uh, is because he prostituted himself, maybe in the beginning with the best of intentions. Because, you know, everybody's looking to diversify their sources of energy. So he looked around and he said, look, we're lucky. Why should we rely on the Middle East to come through the river or canal and the, through the seas and be vulnerable uh, this way? We've got a land connection. We can build a pipeline. And remember Ronald Reagan, again, in Casey, Bill Casey, too, tried to prevent the building of that pipeline because they didn't want uh, Germany to become too dependent on that. And the Germans said, okay. Uh, we're going to build it anyway, but we recognize there's a problem. We will agree to hold down our consumption to 25%. And you see what's happened. It's gone back up because it's a nice, uh, easy thing to, uh, to do that. And then he went ahead and he said, now that we've got this uh, su supply of natural gas, we can do away with nuclear energy for environmental reasons. We, you know, it's dangerous, right. Chernobyl and all this kind of stuff. Uh, the French took a different route. so. He designed a program, Garrett Schroeder designed a program whereby uh, in about uh, five years from now, ten years from now, Germany would close down all its nuclear reactors. And as an environmentalist, you know, that's something I can't criticize. But, what, but then that makes Germany almost entirely dependent on this way, so he has kind of cut off the alternate uh, source of supply. What, what implications have this? Well, I think and it, it's going to be uh, very hard to prove, but I think that this inevitably has to have an impact on the political decision making that takes place in Germany. Now, now Angela Merkel is pretty tough, you know, harder than uh, most of her predecessors, certainly than Schroeder, towards Russia. Uh, but, you know, the meeting that took place, what, two weeks ago in, uh, in Romania, where there was a discussion of whether or not to uh, uh, sponsor Ukraine and Georgia as members of NATO, Germany said, no, we don't want to do that. Uh, and so I have to ask the question, were they doing that because they really thought it was a bad idea or were they doing it because what's the, what's the, why should we stir up the Russians? 
Um, and why should we give ourselves ulcers uh, about this? Uh, so I, as, as a minimum, I think some of these countries are going to pull their punches. Just, it's not worth it. Is, is this the main po point of our, of our uh, existence or our strategy? Or our, what's our priorities? And if it's low on the priority list, uh, why should we buy this? So I think we're going to see a lot of that uh, in, in this kind of situation. And I also have to say, you know, I worry. Uh, I don't know if I would want to say that Georgia should be a member of NATO, or Ukraine for that matter, uh, because this is really sticking your fingers in, in Russia's eyes. And Georgia, the, you know, nothing is contiguous there. But Georgia is, plays a very key role in this, and that is that uh, in an effort to try to get around this monopoly, and it's really a monopoly that Russia has, uh, there has been an effort to encourage the building of pipelines in the south that bypass Russia. So from the Caspian to Azerbaijan, through Georgia, through Turkey, up through Europe, the underbelly, so both oil and gas. And one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons I think Russia has been so critical of Georgia, the long list, but is because they want to do everything they can to make sure that that pipeline that goes through Georgia is, is uh, destroyed or not built in the case of, of, of natural gas. Because that would destroy their, their, their stranglehold uh, on this kind of thing. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that that's one of the objectives that the, the Russians have in trying to destabilize Georgia. There are other reasons, but that's clearly, that's clearly one of them. So I don't know if that's responsible. Yes, sir. Why do you think it's more dangerous for Western powers to be very dependent on Russia for oil and gas or to be dependent on countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran? Well, see, that's a, let me rephrase the question because it's, it's, it's not quite that way. We don't get natural gas from Saudi Arabia, see. Uh, Saudi Arabia actually doesn't have much in the way of natural gas, and Saudi Arabia is not a major supplier to Europe. But, I mean, so that's why I say I support the purchase of petroleum from Russia, bring as much in as they want, because that is a, uh, an alternative source to the Middle East. And if the Russians, for some reason, cut it off, okay, then we'll go, what, to Venezuela or to uh, Saudi Arabia? I mean, we'll, you know, uh, we'll go somewhere. Uh, but at least there'll be something out there, maybe a high price, but there'll be something out there. Whereas in the case of natural gas, if you're hooked up with a pipeline, you cut off that pipeline, there's no alternative. Or you could say, okay, sooner or later we'll bring in LNG, but then you've got to build these, these very expensive processing plants to send in. And, and there is no spot market for LNG. A spot market means you can buy at the last minute. There is a long, it takes over a year. Contracts usually now are no less than a year because there's so much money involved, so much capital involved, that you can only warrant the building of that processing plant uh, if you assume that it's, you're going to have a long enough contract to, to earn your money back. So, so in the case, uh, you know, you're, you're, what I mean, I take your point and I agree with it that we should obtain as much in the way of petroleum as we can. Natural gas is a different customer, and and what I try to look at in the book is for the Russians, the oil brings in the money, that's the main income source. The natural gas, however, gives them the political leverage, and it makes them both factors together give them this new hubris that is reflected in these, these statements that I ended up with. But I, I accept, your, I accept uh, the point that you're trying to make. Yes, ma'am, in the back, yeah. Uh, 
Nozima I'm sorry. My name is Nozima Kamalova. I'm a visiting fellow from CDDR, uh, from Uzbekistan CDDRL. So uh, my question is, um, I, I actually want uh, to commend the, uh, the <coughs> scheme and also want to say that uh, I think the, the success of Russian economy is the, uh, in my opinion, is the, the reforms which have been uh, 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 done by the Igor Gaidar's uh, actually uh, command the, uh, team that time. And I think uh, that's why we have in 1999 this uh, decline and then it goes to, uh, to grow. Uh, do you think, uh, in, in, and now Putin uh, actually uh, uh, changed this tip to, from the uh, private companies to the government companies, as you said, and, uh, uh, and I think the echo and implications of the um, uh, Russian economy will have in near future, like maybe upcoming 10 years, because of this uh, shift from the private to the government again, is a like Soviet-controlled uh, economy. And, uh, and uh, I think its, it's implications will give uh, very soon this echo. So, do you think, uh, do you agree with this, uh, uh, my argument? Well, I agree with part of it. Uh, <laughs> um, I think the privatization, I said this is in my earlier book, I'm very critical of the privatization process and of Gaidar and the way they, they did it and the advice that he got from, uh, well, both uh, Schleifer and to some extent Jeff Sachs and, and Jonathan Hay. Um, <clears throat> because I'm a fan of privatization, but I don't like the way they did it, and I think it ended up in just the wrong kind of methods and process. But what has happened is I do agree with you that there is now the beginning, or there has under Putin, there's the beginning of renationalization. In the year 2000, um, about they had reduced the role of the state sector to, in terms of oil production to about 20%. Uh, now it's back up, the state sector now is back up close to 50%. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to renationalize the rest, but this is in line with his notion of national champions. Um, and so the, the, the Russians think that this, this is going to give the state more control, the resources will be used more appropriately, there won't be the stripping of assets, and the money's not all going to end up in Zurich, London, or, or New York. Uh, and so I, I give Putin credit for this this effort and uh, and, the, and the way he's used it. Now it's also fortunate that these companies have access to Western technology in a way they did not have in the Soviet era. Partly because they they didn't want foreigners messing around in in these very important areas, and second of all because we in the United States and and Europe did everything we can to prevent them from gaining access to the technology that we had developed for this. So one consequence of that now is when we went out to the uh, Priyomskaya oil field in <coughs> Siberia, what did we find? Uh, we found the Schlumberger, which is the French company out there uh, doing the drilling. They were using the same kind of technology you would use in Texas or Alaska or, or wherever uh, Western companies would be, and also Halliburton, which is George Cheney's, uh, not George Cheney, Don Cheney's uh, uh, old, old company, which of course you couldn't use that technology in an earlier era. So 
they're using this, and and, uh, and they're, these hands are for hire, and and they're eager to go there and, and do it as long as they're paid and can can do their work. So uh, this this these state companies now um, are not necessarily less productive than would be the private companies. In the old days, you would say a state company simply wasn't going to be as productive. But uh, one of the things that, you know, if you've been reading the last week, there were a series of discussions about uh, uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron who are releasing their, their, their profit figures for uh, 2007. And in each case, they're talking about the fact that that environment for private oil companies is more and more difficult because more and more of the countries where there is oil are using their own state companies to produce. And so this kind of narrows the options that these uh, companies have. And uh, uh, it's, it, it, it does limit what, what they can, can do. So, so anyway, uh, yes, I think uh, uh, Russia now is more productive, even though the state has increased its uh, share of ownership and control. Yes. Yes, sir. How does the Russia uh, Turkmenistan oil deal play into the Yeah. Well, I just, I, you know, I just, just criticized Dick Cheney. I should have said Dick Cheney instead of Donald Yeah. Um, one of the things he he saw and he understands is that this is important to do everything we can to help a country like Turkmenistan, which has what the third or largest or second largest. Uh, or natural gas reserves to get its gas out because uh, as a legacy of the Soviet Union up until now Gosp Gazprom inherited the, the gas pipelines that were the ministry of the gas industry and they went out into Central Asia um, and so Turkmenistan now as things stand or until st things stood recently had no alternative but to go through that pipeline if they wanted to sell export that gas and Dick Cheney comes along and he says what we should do is uh, uh, help them build a gas pipeline through the Caspian Sea to Azerbaijan, through Georgia, through Turkey. And to do this, well, we may have to go up through uh, Kazakhstan, but get Kazakhstan in this, get Uzbekistan, uh, the three countries in there where they do have oil and gas, and provide them with an alternative. Because what was happening is the Russians, Gazprom was buying a gas from Turkmenistan for $50 or less a thousand uh, cubic meters and selling it for 150 or 200 in, in Europe uh, or even in uh, to Ukraine and, and uh, so there was some interest now particularly with new leadership in Turkmenistan to, uh, to support something like that but but I think part of what I have recommended in the book is that part of our foreign policy should be to help underwrite uh, these kinds of activities. books out there they're going to Okay, go ahead. Are any of these profits being reinvested in Russia to improve health care? For example, we all know about the disastrous situation now in Russia with high mortality and poor health. Is, are these profits going into improving health care? I think so. Yeah. Well, uh, two things. One is the profits. Uh, the cities that they're when we went, we went out to Kandymansisk, which is uh, which is kind of the center city before the Priomskaya oil field, and, and uh, you know you can see the old wooden barracks that people used to live in, and now they are being replaced by uh, modern facilities, uh, masonry, and 
they were building a lot of public projects that doesn't necessarily address the health issue, but for the workers in the oil industry, for sure, uh, life has improved. Uh, the government is collecting taxes. The government has not been uh, taking the profits from these revenues and, and spending them domestically until just very recently. They've been putting them in a stabilization fund. And uh, now there's some call, well, it was right before the election anyway, to kind of uh, spend more of it on public projects, not that Medvedev had any comp real competition, but to generate more support for what he was trying to do. So, um, there, there's some of it is going there, but for the most part they're, they're being very careful for fear that uh, if they let it all out, it would destabilize the country. Uh, and Putin is aware of this. I mean, I do give credit to Putin for, he does care about his country, uh, and he cares deeply about it, and uh, he wants to do what he can, but but I don't think he, he's also worried, partly because he had that conservative economic advisors who were more interested in sustaining what was happening and were worried that if it, they blew it all at once, uh, it would destroy the currency and destroy everything else. So I think that's, you know, I give, I give Putin credit for that. It, life expectancy is still very low for men, but it's gone up a bit. Putin is also providing benefits to encourage people to have more children. Uh, but, you know, it's still a disgrace. Here's a country that where life expectancy for men was 58, 59. If I were lecturing in, uh, uh, in Moscow, I wouldn't be alive to do that, uh, nor the audience, uh, wouldn't be any audience. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I have a similar question. By the infrastructure, about the inability to be able to get on a train, you know, without an armed guard. The whole, that part of the uh, uh, culture doesn't seem to be, uh, nobody seems to be paying any attention to that. Yeah. Uh, there's no... You can't uh, brush your teeth the same thing yeah. with, uh, with the tap water. As I think I mentioned before, my wife is a specialist on China, and uh, when we go there, or she said infrastructure, 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 spending an enormous amount of money on infrastructure. In Russia, they have not done that. There's no super highway connecting Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh -huh. uh, for example. I mean, there, it goes down to two lanes or three lanes at some what point. What about the banking? Well, you can't check in. Oh, no, well, you, there's banking now. The thing is, if you use an ATM, somebody else may use your same <laughs> thing, and so you may discover... Uh, <laughs> But, but no, the banking system is there, but, but you know, they're worried about, they haven't really done much to repair the pipelines, and um, they haven't put as much money in infrastructure. The railroad system is still very dominant, the highway system is not. Uh, water is still a problem, you still dare not drink the water in St. Petersburg, which is, after all, also a disgrace. Um, so there's a lot that needs to be done, but, but it's, you know, they can do more with what they've got, despite the the insistence on being very modest in what they do so as not to destabilize the country. Yes, ma'am. A very quick comment on, on health care. Um, I can attest that a senior curator in a hermitage diagnosed with breast cancer did not get coverage. Uh, and this is the state hermitage museum. Good. And that, I think, is shocking. You're quite apart from the demographic mm -hmm. figures that are well publicized. Yeah. Well, it, it, life expectancy for women is a little better, but not much better. It's still a disgrace for, for what's happening. But, you know, you have to beg for friends to start yeah, therapy. Yeah, yeah. Can I just take one more question? How about Gail in the back? Okay. Oh, Hi, Gail. <laughs> We've um, had an embarrassment of riches in the past week with a whole series of lectures uh, about Russia, and one of our visitors was Ed Lucas. Yeah. 
Hoover, you must know, and in his new book and in his lecture, he made the argument that, um, uh, in fact, that Gazprom is a completely non-transparent company, that because of the double hatting of government officials and company officials, huge amounts of money are in effect siphoned off mm. into slush wealth, not only sent abroad, but also siphoned off into government-controlled slush funds of various kinds, and that some of that money, in turn, is being used to, so to speak, buy up, uh, not only buy up assets uh, and uh, infrastructure in Europe to expand control, monopoly control over pipelines, but also buy up relevant officials and business executives <laughs> in Europe to deter them from putting any money into alternative pipelines. Yeah. And so this is part of a much larger strategy to kill off efforts like the effort to create Nabucco, which he considers basically mm. dead because all of the countries in Western Europe and Southern Europe that would have had to be part of this project to create an alternative pipeline um, that basically Russia has captured control of this. Um, I wonder whether, um, and he had certain policy recommendations that followed from that about how to respond a little bit more energetically um, to this fairly coherent strategy. Do you plan to share that with yeah. what's going on and also his recommendations about what ought to be the response? Well, I do. Uh, he's read my book, by the way, and he's writing a review for the Wall Street Journal, so uh, <laughs> I'd, li I'd like to think some of that comes from me, too. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, they are. I mean, I, I, say, I, I say in the book, um, uh, that uh, I li liken Putin to a, a, a grand chess master. Uh, Cheney goes, as I said, to Alma-Ata to try to convince the Kazakhs, Kazakhs to build a, this alternative pipeline. Cheney, uh, Putin flies out right away as soon as Putin, as Ch Putin flies out as soon as, I can't tell, maybe, uh, as, as Cheney leaves to convince, you don't want to do that. Uh, we've got to, you know, we'll, we'll guarantee you a pipeline that's already up and operating and and he's doing the same thing with Hungary, uh, Austria, to try to do everything he can to sabotage. This is not necessarily buying up. But, but you also find, and then I'll, maybe I'll just end with this, um, what's happening with this new influence, this new oil influence, how it's affected the United States too. Uh, it turns out that this firm ITERA, or ITERA, which is located in Jacksonville, Florida, decides that they want to ingratiate themselves in the United States, and so they hire a public relations consultant who just by coincidence happens to be the daughter of an American congressman, Kurt Weldon. And they give her a half million dollars, which is pretty good, pretty nice for uh, a consultant's fee. Uh, now, now uh, Weldon is the, or was the uh, congressman from a suburb of Philadelphia, not as I, my last look at the map, not that close to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and, and what does Weldon do? Weldon uh, arranges for a reception in, in the Library of Congress for ITRA to go to Washington to meet people. He arranges, uh, he, goes, he goes to Jacksonville, Florida, help them dedicate their new offices. He arranges for them to get a, a grant from the Export-Import Bank for $800,000 or thereabouts to drill for gas in Russia, which I didn't think was normally what the Export-Import Bank uh, was charged with doing. Um, so, you know, you've got the money, why not? Uh, you, you, you know, and, and this is not... 
I don't mean to say that the Russians are the only ones, Russian oil officials or executives are the only ones who have ever used their money to try to win support with governments. I mean, you know, our, our record of our companies and international companies generally is, leaves a lot to be desired. Um, now, I'll just end with this story that, that you know, uh, there was a whole series of scandals about what was the Department of Justice doing because the Department of Justice began to release information about different congressmen in different districts in an effort to cause them to be defeated, you know, Democratic uh, congressmen, so that the Republicans could increase their, their standing. The only thing here is that Weldon is uh, a Republican, which doesn't fit in exactly. Somebody got their signals mixed up. Anyway, he lost the election. Uh, in 2006, after 10 terms, uh, and and this again is an illustration of where the, you know oil money. Or I don't know if the government. I don't think Putin was involved in this, but clearly, the, clearly this was a case where indeed uh, what it goes on right here in River City, and it has an impact on us as as well. So uh, this I just finished writing something called Russia is back, and that's that's what I think this represents. Listen, there are copies of Marshall's book outside. I think they are probably for sale. Not, I hope so. Not for being not to be given <laughs> away, but I hope you will. I hope you will read it. And let's thank him very much for what. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.